This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. David Granite, and welcome to Health Matters. When you're a parent or anyone who's got a loved one whose behavior may be beginning to change, maybe they're a teenager, maybe they're not, a little bit older, you start to wonder, could something be more seriously wrong? Maybe you need some help, maybe you need some advice, maybe everything's okay, and it's just normal stuff that's going on. With us to help us through this topic, we have a true world's expert, Dr. Kristen Cadenhead, welcome. Thank you. Dr. Cadenhead was with us years ago, uh, we won't say how long ago, uh, in the early days of the program, uh, and is now a uh, professor of psychiatry and director of the CARE program here at UC San Diego um, and director of the Early Psychosis Treatment Program. Um, I dropped that word psychosis in. I dropped in the CARE program. I think we probably have to define what some of these things mean. What is the CARE program that you're directing? Well, the CARE program stands for Cognitive Assessment and Risk Evaluation Program. And uh, we developed this a number of years ago as a program to identify individuals who are showing early signs of a psychotic illness. And uh, we wanted to be very careful about this in the beginning, and we still do, because we're very sensitive to things like stigma, and we didn't, we didn't really want to include psychosis or something like schizophrenia in the title. Um, in part because some of the individuals we identify as potentially at risk don't go on to develop any significant problem. Sure. So it would be just like calling somebody precancerous when you don't really know for sure that it's going to become a cancer. I think people know what cancer is, but I'm not sure they know what psychosis and schizophrenia is. And before we go too much further, let's demystify what those terms mean. What are psychosis? What is mm -hmm. schizophrenia? Yes. Psychosis um, can describe a state of having a uh, change in behavior, change in perception, uh, maybe starting to, I think classically you, you uh, hear about things like hallucinations, starting to hear things or see things that aren't there that other people don't experience, maybe developing false beliefs, thinking that other people are talking about you, thinking that maybe somebody's following you or going to hurt you. But there are other symptoms of psychosis that are not always recognized as psychosis. Uh, thought disorder, having some kind of alteration in the flow of thought, maybe things get jumbled up and confusing, it's hard to communicate. And then there can also be what are called negative or deficit symptoms, a loss of interest or pleasure, uh, maybe maybe not showing very much emotion, not showing motivation. So it's really all of those things together. And psychosis can characterize a lot of different um, uh, situations. So, for example, somebody could be high on drugs and show psychotic symptoms. Chemically induced. Right, chemically induced. There can be rare medical problems that can cause psychosis, like a brain tumor, for example, could cause a psychotic um, symptom. Um, but the most common forms are schizophrenia and then um, sometimes mood disorders such as bipolar, manic depression, or depression can have psychotic symptoms along with them. Listening to you talk, uh, you know, I was channeling back to our, our discussion just before the show started, and that is so many of the, the things that you mentioned 
go along with being a teenager, for example. And I think every parent at some point worries that their kid might be depressed or have lack of motivation or is not interested in engaging and have at least superficially seem like they have some of these. How do you separate out somebody who is getting into trouble or showing some signs that will lead to a real significant problem versus the normal developmental changes that take place throughout teenager. Right. No, that's, it's, a, it's a very difficult line. Um, but what I often look for is whether it's affecting their functioning. You know, is it affecting their relationships, their friendships? Is it affecting their performance in school or work? Are they becoming more isolative? Um, and sometimes kids, and we were talking about this before, sometimes they can be a little bit rebellious. They don't want their parents around. They want to hang out in their room by themselves yeah, or on video. That, right? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so, so I, I know that for me, I would watch my children when they were interacting with their friends. If I saw that they were doing fine with their friendships, happy, communicative, I knew that they were probably doing okay. But I do think parents have to be aware because adolescence is when a lot of things do start to come on. So if somebody's concerned, what do they do? Well, a lot of times the, one of the first places you can start is to talk to your pediatrician or your general practitioner if, if there's a concern. Um, sometimes there will be people available through the schools who might be a good person to communicate with. And then there are plenty of excellent counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists in town that could do an evaluation. And, and I know that within our program, you know, we often are contacted by people who maybe they even have a family history of something like schizophrenia or psychosis, and they're a little worried about their their child. So they might bring them in saying, you know, we hope there's nothing going on, but can you at least talk to them and see if you think that there might be something for us to be concerned about? Sure. You, you're, you're talking as a clinician right now, but you're an academician also here at UC San Diego. And um, there's this, this cool article that was recently embargoed that just came out. And I'll read the title, An Individualized Risk Calculator for Research in Prodromal Psychosis. So in English, what does that mean? Well, what that means is we have been studying risk factors for the development of psychosis for many years. And now I'm part of a nine-site consortium across North America, and we're all doing this together. We're studying large numbers of individuals that are high risk for developing a psychotic illness. So we've identified them based on things like family history of a psychotic illness, but also having more subtle or subsyndromal symptoms of psychosis. So maybe starting to think they hear their name called or maybe starting to feel a little suspicious or paranoid. And by being part of a group, you can leverage larger information yes. and be more powerful. Yes, and so we follow that group of individuals over time, so over about two to three years, and we figure out, well, who are the people that are at the absolute highest risk? Because the group that we identify, roughly 20 to 30 percent later develop a psychotic illness. And this is just based on their clinical symptoms alone and family history. Hmm. Um, so we look. So we work with this group, and we do a number of different assessments on them. We do a full neuropsychological, cognitive type assessment. We also look at all their demographics. We look at um, uh, the symptoms that they they came in with to see which ones really seem to be 
predictors, predictors of who are the very highest risk. Um, and I say this because it has implications for treatment, because you don't want to be using hardcore treatments with individuals who are not going to become psychotic eventually, just like but, you don't want to give insulin to a diabetic before they become. But you would like to get somebody identified who will have a problem yes. and intervene if you could to deflect their pathway right. early. Right. And so we've identified a number of risk factors over the years. And so what we have done in this paper is we use the model of cancer risk or heart disease risk. And there are risk calculators that have been developed because, so for example, in cancer, you might want to decide, well, which type of chemotherapy do you want to use depending on the level of risk to that individual? Um, and the same thing with heart disease, you know, whether you want to lower their cholesterol to help prevent Absolutely. risk for heart attack. And so we wanted to develop the same thing. So we, we actually went to some of the statisticians who do this kind of work in cancer and heart disease, and they helped us to develop this calculator. And it's, it's an online calculator, and you can go online, put in things like what their neurocognitive performance was. It's for... Doctors, yes. clinicians, and so it's this not for is parents to, or, or patients to do. And that's one thing we want to emphasize. You know, this is really more within the research realm at this point. This isn't something you just go do at home <laughs> and see if my kid's at risk. Right. So you want, to, um, you want to have them assessed by a professional that knows the assessment criteria, and then going from there, we look at risk. And this is the goal of everybody in academics, which is to do work that eventually gets translated into clinical practice or makes a difference for the clinician to be able to right. take care of the person right in front of them. So uh, theoretically, somebody uses your calculator now and, and gets a better sense that this, the, the patient is at greater risk. So they've identified someone who's clearly at greater risk. Now what? Well, in that case, again, it opens up the door for intervention-type studies um, because really at this stage, we know what to do once somebody has developed full psychotic symptoms. But before they develop psychotic symptoms, what is the best practice? And, I, and we have been looking at this um, and a number of other investigators. And right now, you know, part of it is that you need to decide, well, what are the symptoms and what are you really targeting? Is there a mood disorder? Is there anxiety? So you want to really focus on, on those symptoms that are presenting themselves initially. There are a number of what we call psychosocial interventions, like psychotherapy, that have really proved evidence-based uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, social skills training. Um, there are also a number of groups doing work in cognitive remediation, some of the brain training that's advertised. Uh, again, we're in the process of doing all of these studies, but there's evidence that you can improve cognition by using these types of approaches. Um, there have been some yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I get parents in my office, for example, who ask about brain training all the time. And I, I don't feel equipped to answer those questions. It's not my area of expertise. Those kinds of things are evidence-based. Yes. Uh, and um, do you have to, because some of them are springing up a little bit, um, how does someone know where to turn for 
some of those interventions? You again rely on the experts you're talking about, right? Right. And so, at, at least what we're what we're doing here in San Diego, one of my colleagues, Elizabeth Twomley, is an expert in what's called compensatory cognitive training, and what that means is she's developed a very common sense, manualized approach. Um, that when I went through the training to learn how to do this intervention, I actually found many of the techniques were helpful to me. Things like how to capitalize on what your cognitive strengths are. So if you're a very organized person, you can use those skills to develop a calendar, plan out your schedule, and that can help you to be more effective if, say, you have a bad memory. So you can use that technique to help work around some of the areas that are more difficult for you. And so it's a very practical approach. Um, again, the, the brain training games, I think that the jury's a little bit out on that. There are, a number of, there are a number of groups that are doing it. It's been marketed heavily. Yes. And there's a lot of enthusiasm. And I think we would all love for that to be an effective treatment. And that's what our hope is, is we, you know, we've actually um, just received a, a small gift to help us set up a brain training laboratory. So we're planning to have a number of those types of interventions available. And then they will also do group therapy with the compensatory cognitive training I mentioned so that they'll be getting both aspects of that. And see if it makes a difference. Yes. Uh, that's a long-term project because right. it may be years before you can tell whether or not that group has had an impact that made a difference yes. for them. Um, at the same time as you do these kinds of risk calculators and evaluations, do you, do you do MRIs, functional MRIs, PET scans? Are there sort of the more technical side of medicine tools that make a difference for you? Yes, yes, we have. So we have a whole neuroimaging core. So we're using, we're looking at things like cortical thickness or gray matter. So we're, um, and there's evidence that that uh, there, there's a normal loss of gray matter with development in your late teens, but it seems seems that there's a greater loss in those individuals with psychotic illness. And it seems to be a more rapid decline in those who eventually develop the illness. So we, um, we are looking at a number of different kinds of markers and mechanisms that may be responsible for some of these gray matter changes. Um, so we're looking at things like inflammation, oxidative stress. Um, we're looking at brain plasticity or the ability to, to, uh, to change. Um, so we're looking at these various mechanisms that may be responsible. And, you know, we've been able to identify a number of what are called biomarkers um, that, that are associated with later conversion to psychosis. And at least in this phase of the calculator, we didn't incorporate any of those things other than the neuropsychological testing. Um, but our One hope is, time, right? yes, I mean, yeah. our hope is, and, and then the key is to develop a, a, what's called a translational method that can be translated into the clinic. You don't want to have a really expensive neuroimaging technique that is, you know, just costs so much that you can't do it. So if you can develop really the more basic test that could be done at the bedside, and give you some important information early. That's that's my interest. That plugs into your iPhone, and mm -hmm. you, can, you right. can use it that yeah. way. Uh, we had David Feifel on, who was talking yes. about mm -hmm. transcranial magnetic stimulation, which blew my mind uh, mm -hmm. figuratively. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, to think that there might be those kinds of interventions that was for depression, but the, for psychosis or for other treatments is amazing. 
Yes, yes. And I think that at least um, there's a lot of interest in TMS, um, especially for the more negative or deficit symptoms in a psychotic illness. Again, it hasn't really been studied or tested. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at a number of different kinds of interesting um, interventions that might make a difference. Something like mindfulness. We're, we're doing a mindfulness study right now. Yeah, we had Steve um, Hickman on the show, yes. and uh, mm-hmm. he was fabulous and talked about the, the breath that mindfulness might be able to help of, right. of disorders. But theoretically, th- interventions like t- TMS may help to, to change um, you know, the amount of alpha rhythm. Uh, and, and if mindfulness can do that, TMS can do it. You know, there are other forms of biofeedback, like neurofeedback. And again, these are all uh, experimental techniques that need to be studied, and we really need to develop the evidence base. And going back to the calculator, now that we know those individuals that are more likely, it can help us with our power and statistical analyses if we use these interventions and individuals at the very highest risk. It really fits into some of the personalized medicine concepts of who needs what. Uh, Parents don't, and and most people don't want to go on medications to start with. So some of the things you're talking about are at least appealing emotionally to folks uh, from mindfulness onward versus medication. But some people do need medication. Right. Um, and, And yet we're giving them psychoactive medication and they're worried it's going to change who they are or what they are, and how do you deal with that yeah. discussion, and when do, you, when do you even begin to bring that up or start someone on medication? Well, and again, in the, in the prodromal or the pre-psychotic period of illness, um, there's no evidence base for antipsychotics at this point. Um, the studies really have not panned out as of yet. Maybe we're not studying those at the very highest risk yet. Um, But once they've crossed the threshold to psychosis and they've developed a psychotic illness, and some of the way we define that is they have lost insight and may not recognize that this is maybe something going on in their head and they really believe that the FBI is following them or something like that. Um, That's when you do need to use antipsychotic medication generally. And Usually the way I approach it, and, and again, these are people in our, in our clinical program that's a first episode treatment program. Um, the people that come to us have, have often never been on medication. And so we usually start very slow, very conservatively. We, we move a little bit at a time. Because if your first exposure to a psychotropic medication is a bad one and you get a side effect, then they don't want to take it anymore. And, you know, the say, and also with this age group, uh, they often don't want to continue to stay on medication. You know, all of a sudden their symptoms improve, they're I'm, better, I'm good. <laughs> and, you know, the cold's over, you don't need the antibiotic anymore or, or whatever, and it's the same kind of thing. It's daunting to think at age whatever, 17, 22, 13, that, that you may be on medication the rest of your life. Yes, that's a very hard, hard question. To, yeah, and, and I mean, I think that that's individualized and long work and hard work and all the other things that you're talking about to try and see if you can impact another way in addition to the medication. Yes. Uh, one thing I thought was exciting was some of the omega-3 work that's beginning because yes. I don't know why, but that sounds much more appealing than a medication. Even right. though they're both doing something to you, affecting mm-hmm. you somehow, but 
Omega-3 sounds cooler. Yes, you no, know, and we've just, actually, our consortium has just completed a study, and we are on the verge of breaking the blind and seeing if it was effective. There have been a few different studies in the prodromal phase of illness and some in more chronic forms of illness, and the, the early findings were almost too good to be true. It was amazing that there was a really reduced rate of conversion to psychosis in those individuals who were taking omega-3 versus placebo. And the omega-3, um, it's unclear. It may have some anti-inflammatory effects. Um, it may have some prote- brain protective effects even. And really right now the data looks looks pretty good and it's not a harmful intervention. And one of the other reasons I like it is there's there's some evidence that it may help to protect against things like heart disease. And since so many of our patients who are on psychotropic medication develop things like weight gain, maybe diabetes, metabolic problems, then I think that the omega-3 is also a nice natural intervention that can be used. But I always emphasize that they want to get it from a reputable um, uh, company who does testing for things like mercury and how makes you know? sure. Yes, but that's and that's a very Costco. I mean, how do you know? Uh, yes, you know. exactly, exactly. And I know that for our study, we use a lab that does their own test, and we also have the product tested to make sure that it it does contain the ingredients it's supposed to say. contain. Yes, uh, I heard today driving in that there was a. Uh, an athlete that was banned from a sport because uh, he tested positive for something. And he said, but the supplement I take says it's not in there. And then when they tested the supplement, it had something that they wasn't oh, on the wow. label. So th- this idea of making sure that it was that it's clean. Mm-hmm. I take omega-3s because I can't figure out what's bad about them. Right. Um, and it seems healthy. But I've, I sit there on the shelf trying to figure out which one to take. I imagine other people are like that. Um, I, I don't know how you know. No. And I think it, a lot of times it means doing some research into the products. And, you know, probably the easiest way is just to eat omega-rich foods. Um, My wife tries to make salmon and yeah, says, you don't need to supplement. You eat yeah, this. You know, yeah. but, I'm not so good about what I eat and do all that. Um, you know, the, the, this is such an exciting time and, and the work that you're doing. Um, what do you want to see or where are you going next with your work that is the topic you and I will talk about in five or seven years that will be the, the newest thing and, and that you want to see the, the field move toward? Well, I think that understanding more about the mechanism of illness, and and that's a heavy emphasis of our consortium. Not only are we trying to predict, but we want to understand the mechanism. So if you can understand the mechanism better, that will lead to to more personalized treatment, personalized medicine. Are we going to do a genetic test and say when a kid's born or someone's pregnant? I I don't know that that will be the key, but we are getting genetic studies. We're getting... So we're going to be to learning more about mechanistically. Um, but I also think that we need to be doing reasonable studies, too. And if you can identify some of these biomarkers that can be kind of the endpoint that you're studying, so you know that you're affecting a biological mechanism and can understand what it's doing, whether it's using imaging techniques or physiological techniques or various techniques that can help with that. Um, so I, and, and again, I think we need to translate as much of this into the clinic as we can. And um, there are big national initiatives for early identification. You know, most people go for 
up to two years before anybody identifies that they have a psychotic illness. And so a lot of outreach, education, and again, at a national level, many first episode programs across the country are being developed that have evidence-based treatments. Again, and, and I know that what we have done in our program, it's a heavy psychosocial, psychological treatment model. Of course, we use medication. You need expert diagnosis because the differentiation between something like schizophrenia or bipolar can be huge in terms, in, in, in terms of the prognosis. A lot of times you can't tell what the psychosis is caused by in the beginning. You need a good brain workup. Um, so if you can identify, and then the treatment differs between the two. So that can really make a difference in outcome. But your toolbox is expanding. Yes. And so we're doing, you know, we have intensive outpatient uh, therapy right now where, they, where people come three times a week. Um, again, it's about recovery, getting people back to functioning, getting back to school, back to work, back with friends. Uh, I want to um, sort of tie this up in the short time that we have left optimistically. Help us destigmatize all this. Right. Tell, I mean, you know, the, the success and the positive nature of the treatment that you can do, the, the contributions that folks go on to make, the lives they go on to lead. Let's destigmatize this. Yes, I agree. And, and we have been very fortunate. We've sent lots of kids back to college. I don't know how many college kids we've had that have been able to go back. They might go to community and then university. And I think that people being, being willing to speak up and let other people know what they're going through. Um, because there, there is a lot of fear that they'll be stigmatized or lose friendships, whatever. But, but there really is hope um, for getting back, um, back to where they, you know, or at least close to where they were before. So both for the person at risk or involved and their family, um, the good news is, is that there's a lot of things that can be done and that you have ways to help people get back to function yes. and back to life and, and enjoying life and being participatory in their lives. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next time you come on yeah. and talk about all these great things. And, and, and the work that you're doing is so important. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing sure. uh, and all of your, your, your great work. We're going to get you back. Right? Yes. Okay. Um, I hope everybody's been listening carefully. It, it, it's really phenomenal what's been going on and the advances we have. Some of them sound pretty simple, right? Omega-3 fatty acids may be making a difference. Some of them much more complicated and complex, these complex calculators. But medicine is marching on and the information is marching on. And we have world experts who are making a difference. So if you have someone you're worried about, if you're even worried about yourself, please ask. Go get help. Talk about it. There's a lot that can be done. It's, it, it's not the way it was 50 years ago, and it shouldn't be. So remember, knowledge is power. The more you know, the better you can help yourself and your loved ones. I'm Dr. David Granite, and we'll see you again next time right here on Health Matters. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.